0: Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. I hope everyone listening is doing well and keeping healthy. It was a big week in Israeli politics last week. The new Israeli government uh, actually passed a budget for the first time in over three years, ensuring that the Naftali Bennett Yair Lapid coalition survives and potentially thrives, and making Bibi Netanyahu's comeback options that much more remote. To help us unpack the significance of the budget, including on U.S.-Israel relations, uh, and what the new government actually plans on doing moving forward, we have a terrific guest this week, uh, Tal Schneider, who is a chief political correspondent at the Times of Israel and Man Israel. Tal, good evening. Welcome.
1: Hi, Mary. Good to be here.
0: Thank you for joining us this week, Tal. Uh, you're a great person to talk to about these Israeli political issues and also potentially diplomatic issues. So let's get right into it. Uh, The new Israeli government, led by Bennett and Lapid, uh, they took power in June. As we all know, it's uh, eight parties spanning the gamut from uh, the right, the left, and the center, and even an Arab-Israeli Islamist party. Since the time they took power, five months ago, their main priority was passing a budget. Uh, now, help explain to our listeners why this was so important to the new government that took power.
1: All right. Uh, so the budget, it's a bill which is a center core of, uh, you know, maybe any democracy. And in Israel, if you don't pass a budget, then the government or the, actually the Knesset, the legislative uh, uh, body is dissolved and we are going to election. This is exactly what happened a year ago at the end of two, 2020. The coalition led by Netanyahu and uh, the Defense Minister Benny Gantz, was, um, you know, on purpose, I suppose, unable to pass a budget, and you know, it was done on purpose. So Netanyahu, because Netanyahu was trying to avoid a coalition rota- rotation agreement on which he signed, and mm-hmm. we went for the fourth election cycle. So this is the reason, as you just mentioned correctly at, the, at your opening, uh, this is the reason we didn't have budget for. Um, a whole full two years, but the last time the budget was actually legislated was March 18. So March it was, yeah, it was a huge deal to see the Knesset finally, you know, um performing its uh, main duty. You know, the budget is uh, maybe the <laughs> most important bill, which enables uh, localities and government officials and ministries and, Reforms and so on. I mean, without a budget, you don't have anything. And, and we didn't have a budget through the pandemic. So may I remind again, the last time the budget was legislated was uh, March 2018, mm-hmm. uh, way back before the Israeli economy, like any other economy around the world, needed to, to do so many, so many adjustments for the, um, corona virus.
0: Right so it gives them a, a certain level of economic stability and planning going forward uh and they also like you said have a certain level of political stability uh the government survives the Ket- the Knesset doesn't automatically dissolve they pass the budget so now going forward they have some some newfound stability uh and we should mention right as you, as you know or you've written this that there are only two options really moving forward to actually topple this government uh so they passed a budget and so now to topple the government you'd either have to have a constructive no confidence vote which means right 61 seats uh and then an alternative government and prime minister or dissolving the knesset Mm -hmm. is that is that about right
1: yeah, you can change the component of the coalition inside the current 24th Knesset. For that, you need uh, 61 supporters. Obviously, mm-hmm. the Likud, which is the biggest party in this Knesset, 29 seats, doesn't have 61 people to put together for a new government. Uh, the other option, as you said, is to go for election by dissolving the Knesset. Also, in order to pass that, you need 61 members to sign on a bill that will dissolve the Knesset. So... Nowhere to go, and if you are looking at the current, you know, political players, Vidon Sard, then Bennett, uh, Viktor Lieberman—I I just mentioned the people from the right wing specifically because it seems that on the polls, uh, their numbers are, you know, very weak. So dissolving and going for election for what, or changing the component for what? It's you know, they're better stick to whatever they got at the moment because this is their right. only viable option to stay in power.
0: Right. They don't want to pass a bill uh, basically giving up their jobs exactly, or their seats in Knesset or their ministries. That's a very uh, important motivating factor. Uh, and we should also mention before we move on that if the Knesset were to dissolve, uh, Yair Lapid would almost certainly become prime minister, which is a, a big sanction, so to speak, against Naftali Bennett to actually dissolve the government.
1: Right. It's not almost certainly it's like certainly 100 percent the the laws have been changed here. Before the coalition agreement, such that if, uh, Naftali Bennett is pulling any tricks on Lapid, then Lapid gets to be the instant prime minister. Actually, mm-hmm. it's a prime minister for the election period, uh, which can be like around three and a half months, but.
0: Or two years.
1: Right. Because if, if they're unable, if they after the election, there is, you know, a tie yet again. Then he becomes the interim prime minister for a very long time as we've seen in the last two years.
0: Right. So that's a big sanction for Bennett, uh and good news for Lapid. and that was part of the agreement that they both reached when they formed this government. Uh, mm-hmm. no tricks or sticks like like you said at the top, uh, that happened to Benny Gantz last year when he uh when he entered into a very short lived unity government with Netanyahu, um after the third election, I think. Exactly. Right. So okay, so they passed the budget, they have some stability. Uh, Moving forward, we've heard over the past five months since the new government took took power, there was before the budget and after the budget. Like they say in Israel, you have before the holidays and after the holidays. Mm -hmm. So now we're after the holidays, we're after the budget. Uh, What do you think this new government is going to do moving forward with with their mandate to to actually govern. Um, we saw Bennett and Yair Lapid and the finance minister, Victor Lieberman, give a press conference on Saturday. It seemed to my ears that they were mostly talking about domestic issues. Is that, is that accurate?
1: Yeah, right. This government, now that it has the budget, it needs to perform on it. We are hearing severe problems with public transportation, healthcare system, yeah. education system. I mean, like uh, every place around the world, a huge deficit. Um, you know, local businesses need to revive themselves. Lots of issues and, uh, security operation also got their money finally. So I think um, what the ministers are trying to do is to focus on, you know, civil civil issues that will engage the public. Obviously, it's going to be more boring uh, than the never-ending cycles of elections, because this is just, you know, work. This is just technical issues, housing, uh, crimes, and and uh, infrastructure, roads and bridges and so on. This is not very, right. very you know, sexy as having another election cycle or another fight inside of the Netanyahu's res- residence, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, we are, you know, we are hoping for some just regular years, I would say.
0: <laughs> so you're saying basically that it's gonna be a lot more boring, which may be bad news for all of us covering Israeli politics, but maybe good news for the public. That actually, if this government can deliver on a lot of its domestic agenda, the public may may reward it with uh, with more support. Is that
1: right? I have to tell you, it's it's it can be really boring because, as we all know, this is a very unique coalition. Uh, you mentioned that at the beginning; it's comprising of you know very lefty liberals' parties such as Merit and Labour. For the first time, we have the Arab Society representative in the body of the Islamic Movement Party Ra'am, so the differences between those leaders and, and members of the Knesset is obvious to, to everybody who is watching the political scene. And so it can't be, you know, too boring, obviously. And it has its, um, you know, perks with with this, you know, having the Islamic movement in the coalition is always very, very interesting, right? It's, uh, I think it's a rare, rare uh, you know, occasion here, what's going on here
0: right we 'll get into that uh in a little bit uh, i 'm curious if you had to rank the issues moving forward that the government wanted to tackle how would you how would you rank the issues? Is it you know things like crime and the cost of living and housing uh the infrastructure like you mentioned, or is it more let 's say uh things like uh, Justice Minister Guidon Sar wants to do, which is um you know, passing a law banning an indicted individual from forming government, uh, a.k.a. the Netanyahu laws? Is it judicial reform? Uh, Is it issues like, say, housing in East Jerusalem and the West Bank? Do you you think this government can actually prioritize, let's say, the first batch of issues as opposed to the second or third batch of issues? How would you rank it?
1: I would say there is the, the Twitter world issues. (laughs) And there is the real-life issues. So (laughs) crime, specifically in the Arab society, is probably very high on the list at the moment. We have already seen some moves being done by the Justice Ministry with respect to, you know, um, you could have seen that in the budget and also in in the first... um, first things on the of the order of business um the bills that are being uh, put forward at the moment with respect to if you hold an illegal weapons and mm. other things like that again not the sexy very uplifting you know issues to talk about but it's definitely those are the first things that are being submitted and um the media doesn't probably go deep into that but i think i think talking to the justice minister uh, Gideon Saar, he actually told me that this is on the top of his list and this is going to be the first, you know, decrees and the first bills that are going to be put forward.
0: Okay. Anti-crime.
1: Anti-crime. Yeah. It's not, obviously, it's not phrased anti-crime in the Arab society. This is, uh, as it is phrased, it is fighting crime in the entire of the society. But we do know there is a huge problem in Israel at the moment of, of, uh, Murder, huge murder rate in the Arab society. So right. I, think, I think that's that's the first there. Uh, but also, he's also playing on the, as you said, the anti BB laws. Uh, I don't think that's the right description. Those mm-hmm. bills came out from uh, a two years of distress, from two years of what everybody's watching how alleged, alleged corrupt politician is playing the entire country. And those bills were put forward as a lesson to be learned. Uh, we cannot have a prime minister who is under, you know, indictment. I'm not even talking about under, uh, you know, just submission of the indictment. I'm talking about uh, under process, you know, in court. Right. And the other one is a term limitation that is, that bill has been put forward for so many times uh, through the years, even before. The Netanyahu investigation began. So, um, this is a bill that was being discussed, and actually, we had that bill in the past year in Israel, and it was annulled uh, before before Netanyahu came to power. And you know, they are now realizing that if you are in government for twelve years, the you know the likelihood of corruption through those years is higher than if you finish up after two terms, after eight years. And I think this is the reasoning behind this bill. Obviously, the bills are not going to say Netanyahu in person, but they are—they um, are framed as lessons from that, you know, from the time, from that time. By the way, also just one point: if Net- Netanyahu is able to become a prime minister during the 24th Knesset, I mean the current Knesset, uh, having a different component of the coalition and so on. He is not going to be limited because those bills are not going to be in effect before the twenty-fifth Knesset, which is the next, next Knesset. So he's not completely completely shut off, if you understand what I'm saying.
0: Right. So they won't be uh, necessarily retroactive laws.
1: If there is an election for the twenty-fifth Knesset and he is uh, the head of the Likud, the bills might be restrictive. But if he wins a landslide and he can go into the Knesset as you know, sort of the second person in line, having one of his loyalist uh, ministers being first in line, then change the law, and you know, get the prime, get to be the prime minister. So there is in Israel, there is a way to bypass everything they do, right? Right. Nothing is uh, set in stone.
0: <laughs> right. This is this is the uh, the beauty, and I use that in quotation marks of not having a constitution.
1: Exactly.
0: Right. So that's maybe the good news for the for the coalition government uh but we did see some some rocky period right before the budget passed in the past few weeks uh Certain issues and tensions arose between really the right wing members of the coalition, and the left wing members of the coalition uh issues involving uh settlement construction in the west bank uh settler terrorism in the west Bank. So we did see some tensions arise. It's not all kumbaya. Uh, but they put their differences aside and everyone was was like, you know, let's focus on passing the budget. Now that they've passed the budget, what issues do you think could cause the coalition trouble moving forward? Um, so is it issues like uh, disagreements over certain, uh, let's say, laws that they want to pass? Is it issues with regard to uh, what areas of the country they want to prefer, whether the Negev or the Galil versus the West Bank? Um, what do you think? Do you think the right and the left divide inside the coalition could could be big trouble for the coalition?
1: Yeah, we could have, a, you know, we could have intense a, a uh, period of time yet again coming out from Gaza or from Lebanon or from Syria. And then last time we had the Gaza um, attack or Gaza operation, we have seen a huge rip inside the Israeli society between Jews and Arabs. This could be, I mean, this was just set Uh, maybe two weeks before the government was formed. And this can actually set another, um, you know, riots in the streets and uh, horrific violence between Jewish and Arabs. So Mm -hmm. that could be a major uh, point of contention. Another point of contention, I think, uh, could be the American administrations in their willingness to um, put back the American embassy in um, you know, American I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, American consulate for right, the, the consulate. Palestinians affairs in Jerusalem and um, you know, American administrations pushing back on the decision to build more housing in Judea and Samaria. So those you know, issues can cause lots of trouble in the coalition. you already seen uh, Yair Lapid, which is much more liberal and is the next prime minister. you already seen him saying in, on camera, I think the other night, that his government, including himself, did not agree for the reopening of the American consulate in, in Jerusalem. So, right. uh, and that's a rare, I mean, he stood by his partner, Naftali Bennett, which is much more, I mean, partner and prime minister. And Naftali Bennett obviously is much more to the right And he stood by him on that front. And I think that was supposed to portray to the Americans that if you are, (laughs) if you will try to, you know, rock our boat, it's not, the outcome is not going to be good for us.
0: So that's a good transition, right? So you have the new government just passed a budget. Ostensibly, they have some stability and some security. But you have these these issues, primarily to my mind, related to to the Palestinian issue, and Jerusalem and the West Bank, that could threaten its stability. Um, having uh, done your time in Washington, and also doubling not just as a political reporter but a diplomatic correspondent, um, how do you how do you view the Biden administration on these issues? So even even the Biden people said, okay, we're going to wait till after the budget is passed, and like you said, it it's caused a big stir in the Israeli government and they've all come out against the reopening of the consulate. So how do you think Biden will handle these issues going forward, like the consulate, like potentially settlement construction in the West bank, those types of issues?
1: Yeah, exactly. So, so my sense was that, you know, uh, putting it off up until after the budget was the first, you know, good step, but it's really, you know, depend on internal American politics as well, right? Uh, About pressure coming from the progressive side of the party, of the Democratic Party, and so on. My sense is that Israel's Palestinians' issues are not on the top of the list for for this American administration. Mm -hmm. I do not see a flare of activity. Uh, I do not expect any flare of activity. I think they you know it's both the Euro- European counterparts and the american con- counterparts whenever they hear uh, a note coming from Israeli ministers about housing in the Judea and Samaria. they have a copy paste line they have to put out they put it out they say you know we all know we all know the verbal you know scheme for that uh, in the United States opposes one side steps we should let, We're let
0: deeply. Deeply concerned the
1: concerns. We should have the parties uh, make uh, their own, uh, you know, um, consensual agreements and not uh, prejudge whatever is going to be the final outcome and so on. I mean, we are care about we care about Israel security. We care about the livelihood of the Palestinians and so on. So you will not probably see uh, any further um, steps than than that announcement. Having said that, behind the scene, I think, you know, if you are an American, if you're an experienced American policymaker and you, and you just have been through the 12th years of Netanyahu, you're probably more satisfied with the Benny Gantz defense minister continuing um, connection with the Palestinian Authority. You are probably satisfied with Bennett Lapid and other ministers' uh, on-the-ground behavior with the Jordanian. You are probably satisfied with the way things are going forward with the Egyptians. So those those points are must not be um, ignored because they are uh, you know set of steps that can put the ground. For a later, maybe more understanding of or change in the situation, you know, from a year or two from now. So, yeah, so I I would think, you know, American administrations, um, officials should look at the rest of the of the atmosphere, and if they will choose to focus specifically on the consulate or on the housing it will, you know, come to a dead end. And also, just one more note, Mary, if I may, you have a position for the housing uh, resolutions coming from this coalition. I mean, you, if you hear Merit's uh, ministers and Merit's uh, members of the Knesset, you know, on Twitter, on everywhere, they are saying that if the housing decision is going to go forward, they will be out of the government and that will topple the government. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the United States, if they're worried about it, they probably have to look into whatever Mirvitz is doing because, um, you know, this may actually topple the government.
0: So this is interesting. So you're saying basically that uh, the U.S. position notwithstanding, uh, the trouble may be closer to home for the government if it pushes too far, say, on settlement construction in in the West Bank or East Jerusalem that it wouldn't necessarily take uh, the u s coming down hard on them that 's an important point I think for for our listeners and other people to to take into account that there are limits even within this coalition about what they can and cannot do um, and just to tie up this this u s israel part uh, if i 'm understanding you correctly you 're basically saying number one the israeli palestinian issue in and of itself isn't the highest priority for Washington at the moment, for all the reasons we know, domestic politics, uh, China, and other things going on in the world. Uh, And number two, you you personally believe that the Biden people, when push comes to shove, will actually look at the bigger picture, that they'll actually look at the new government, the non-Netanyahu government that arose and all the perhaps positive things it's doing, and maybe not push it too hard on, say, the consulate issue or the West Bank issue. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah.
1: Again, those are not just positive steps or positive issues. Those are steps that are related to the Palestinian issue mm-hmm. in a not direct way. Having a good relationship between Israel's uh, officials and Jordanian uh, officials, it's, it's, it's usually a very good um, way to start something with the Palestinians. So, you know, it's, it's, it's like the first block. It's the first layer. And Netanyahu was in the former Prime Minister Netanyahu, his relationship with the Jordanian were cut off, and they were you know in disastrous situation for for the last several years. Right. And building the blocks back put you know a fresh approach to the way things may go forward, and having a very smooth transition between Israels and the Egyptians with security cooperation and so on, Mm -hmm. it's another really important layer, so.
0: Okay, those are also very important issues, uh, notwithstanding the Palestinian issue in and of itself that that we uh, all care about. Um, We're gonna switch to uh, a new segment that we have called uh, Ask the Forum, where we take uh, listener emails and questions uh if you have any questions for future episodes of the Israel Policy Pod you can email us at policypod at policypod@ipforum.org and you can write it anonymously as well uh, just include that in the email uh the past week or two we've had several uh, emails can't name all the people who wrote in but they were asking basically the same question tal and it's we can sum it up by where where does bb go from here what what is bb going to do uh, especially now, we should add, that the budget has passed and, like you said at the top, his options for, for toppling the government have have limited. So, as somebody who has covered BB for, for many years, uh, what do you think he's, he's going to do moving forward? Do you think he's going to retire from politics?
1: Well, uh, it's hard for me to predict what are his plans, but I can tell you definitely what he's not going to do. Okay. And I think he is not going to retire. From politics, I think he's not going to cut a deal on his trial, mm-hmm. uh, as it seems for now. He is sticking to his situation, uh, maybe convincing himself that this government will be, you know, will, will you know, cripple pretty soon, or something will happen. Uh, he has a 59. Uh, no, it's not 59. But the opposition it consists of 59 seats. Uh, and the majority, obviously, 61. But he has 52 uh, right. out of the 59. It's a lot. I mean, that's a powerful opposition. So they are able to, you know, kind of um, put a lot of pressure and a lot of uh, game playing in parliament in order to make life miserable for the coalition and make life impossible for the coalition. We've already seen that. They weren't so powerful in the budget process, but mm-hmm. on a day-to-day legislation, they show immense power. And um, he he is sort of enjoying that. I, I couldn't say that he's really enjoying it, but he is still in the game for just this little, you know, hallway politics, just, you know, pulling tricks behind the scenes or, you know, his, his, his most loved... Um, uh, how would you say that? The most—he's
0: um, um, the most popular politician. Uh,
1: no, no, no. I wanted to say that his um, favorite part of politics is the speeches that he gives, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he believes in the power of the speech. He thinks that if he makes a speech, that will ch- that will you know make the change. Uh, That was his strength, but it it was also his um, disadvantage through the years because speeches did not get Iran to stop uh, enriching uh, uranium, of course. But speeches did make the American administrations or other world leaders or the Israeli public follow him very strongly. And so I think he enjoys very much this the the art the craft of speech making in the plenum. We saw him this week standing on the plenum bashing the coalition, thinking that this is very effective. I, I thought it was counterproductive, but you know, still, I mean, he that's that's what he does. Right. Um, he's also writing a book, uh, which may generate. Uh, a, a nice sum of money is not ready to be retired. I think he just turned 73 or 72 like a month ago. Right. So he's, he's not ready to retire. He's thinking things are going to come around. He is probably beating everybody else on the liquid uh, top, uh, Candidates to become next uh, leader of the Likud, if there is an election today, he's probably beating uh, all of them. Mm-hmm. So he has this very, he has this very powerful base, uh, party loyalists, and probably around one hundred thousand people who are party members. They support him in a strong, you know, ways and manners on social media, and some of them in the streets. And uh, some of them in a very, uh, I would say, violent, verbally violent way. Right. And he gets uh, a lot of uh, energy from these people. Some of them are really uh, blunt and are the, are on the insightful uh, side. But still, he is, you know, he's um, taking a lot of power, uh, personal power from that. And I think he is in- enjoying that.
0: So, On that point, you don't see any real challenge coming from within the Likud. Like we saw a few weeks ago, Yuli Edelstein, the former health minister, a senior official from within the Likud party, basically come out and say, I want to challenge Netanyahu for the top spot because I don't think if Netanyahu remains the leader of the party that we can actually get back into government and into power. Uh, so that was just one example, but you don't really think that you, Edelstein and maybe others will, will mount a real challenge against Netanyahu inside the party?
1: Well, I think they are a challenge for him, but we've seen through the last 12 years that every time that a person took up against Netanyahu, he managed to get between 25 to 30%, mm-hmm. maybe 30-something percent, uh, and then Netanyahu took the rest of it. If you have two contenders or three contenders at the same time, maybe together they will come up with 40% and he will take 60%. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if we, you know, you only need 51% to win or 50, 50 point uh, something to, to win. And... Um, According to the rules and laws of the Likud, if uh, none of the parties got forty percent, they're going for a second round. And a second round, you are facing just one person, and definitely then Netanyahu is taking uh, power. Um, right. Some people in the Likud are, you know, they're very um, they're rooting for uh, primaries because they think, you know, having a primaries on the top of the list will get the Likud to be more a more vibrant and more lively party it is already a very vibrant and lively party. It's a, let's, it, let's also mention that it's, um, you know, it's the, the, they still doing a democracy, in the Likud, right. which is not the case in many other parties. I think maybe only labor merits and, um, Hadash, which is a part of the joint Arab list. Those are the only parties that are still doing internal democracy. So the Likud is doing internal democracy big time. And, um, and on this internal democracy, Netanyahu always wins because he is very popular within within the Likud people. And he loves campaigning. He loves to be in the streets and and you know talk to people. So going on in a campaign for him, it's a you know it's a bliss. We saw him four times enjoying himself. I mean, the Israeli public suffered, but he didn't care much. I mean, he was enjoying himself so much going on the campaign trail.
0: Right. He uh, he. Through four successive elections, he seemed like he was campaigning the hardest, and he was the one that was actually prime minister, which was uh, remarkable to see. But uh, like you said, uh, the public suffered. Um, Tal, let's shift to our second newish segment called uh, Curation Corner. Uh, As I've said in the past, there's a lot of content out there. Uh, So what we try to do in this segment every week is to highlight our favorite recent pieces, uh, either articles or books or TV shows uh, that you, our listeners, should check out, uh, obviously Israel-related. I'm going to give you my choice, Tal, and then you can can tell us what you want to recommend to our listeners. Um, But I want to recommend an article that came out in The New Yorker, written by Ruth Margalit, called The Arab Israeli Power Broker in the Knesset. Is Mansour Abbas changing the system or selling out the Palestinian cause? Uh, For those listening who don't know who Mansour Abbas is, he's really, uh, other than Bibi and maybe Naftali Bennett, uh, the real Israeli politician in the news. He's the head of the Ram Party, the Arab-Israeli faction who joined the government, who joined the coalition. Uh, He's the head of this Islamist faction. And really, for the first time in Israeli history, you have a proper Arab-Israeli party that was willing to to play ball on the national level, and uh, through that, he's trying to get all kinds of budgetary allowances for the Arab public, uh, much needed uh, budget allowances, we should say. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of uh, kind of traditional Arab-Israeli or Palestinian nationalists are asking, you know, has he sold out? Has he sold out the Palestinian issue, uh, which he de-emphasizes? Uh, in favor of more, let's say, domestic issues closer to home. So that's hmm. uh, an article uh, very well done by Ruth Margalit. You should check out. Uh, Tal, what do you think of Mansour Abbas?
1: Well, I know him personally uh, from the first time he entered the Israeli Knesset. Um, Talked to him right away when he entered and immediately noticed this is something um, you know different about him. And um, very lovely guy, I must say. If you've seen him on TV... He's a very, how to say that, like mellow, mellow mellow-going, soft-spoken.
0: Yeah, uh, mellow, calm.
1: calm. uh, Cheerful and always wants to meet people and talk to them. Very affectionate guy. And he's a dentist. So he's a doctor as well. So we only have two doctors in the Israeli, I mean, physicians in the Israeli Knesset. Both of them are Arabs, which comes to tell you, right. I mean this is kind of portraying the Arab society these days. I, I don't know if our listeners are aware to that, but the physicians, pharmacists and um, you know the hospital staff and uh, many other um, many other uh, um, healthcare professionals are in, in Israel these days are Arabs, which is fascinating. And you can see that in the Knesset, mm-hmm. um, you know, composition, you have two two doctors, both of them Arabs. Uh, that's Ahmed Tibi and Mansour Abbas. Um, I think I think Mansour Abbas um, is is really the biggest story of this couple of years. Uh, maybe other than Netanyahu, mm-hmm. he came out right away and said. Uh, We want to be engaged. I mean, he told me in private, and and we put it out uh, on record and in many articles and and tweets and so on. He said, I'm going to sign a coalition agreement. I, I do not agree to be voting absentee in order to help the coalition to build itself. So for example, on the right wing, on the Netanyahu side, there was some discussion to have a coalition that will be comprised of I think 57 seats uh, and the Islamic movement party will support from the outskirts, which means that it will not vote it down, but it will not vote it, you know, in support. Right.
0: And thereby giving the coalition a majority, but not officially being part of the coalition,
1: giving them a majority, but not a 61. Right. This is what Netanyahu was, you know, this is what, this was Netanyahu's goal. He was trying to convince the religious Zionism, Party headed by Batsar smartrich let 's have Mansour Abbas walk out on the vote, abstaining, and then we have a majority for a government and Smartrich said no i'm not relying on the on the Islamic movement to abstain and save our government mm-hmm. but, but this was just like the discourse between Netanyahu and the religious Zionism on the right wing is can we rely on them to abstain or can't we? But they never listened to what Mansour Abbas told them and told us reporters and told everyone who would listen to him. He said, I am not going to abstain because abstaining is not being part of the political game. Either I'm voting for or I'm voting against and I am signing a coalition agreement." You know the only missing part of this puzzle is becoming a a minister. Right. I told him, if you are so consistent with your wishes and you want to be engaged, why won't you take a ministerial job? You can be housing minister or interior minister, but obviously he's not going to be a defense minister right right he, he does he never wanted to, but how you know he could be health minister because he is a dentist, as I said, and hes he told me, you know what this is too much for the Israeli society to digest. Let's take it step by step. I am telling the prime minister, the former prime minister, I'm telling him I'm not abstaining. I'm not walking out of the door. I am part of this country. I am a citizen. I, am part, I want to be part of the coalition. I want to have a paper signed as an agreement, as a coalition agreement. And you know what? This is exactly what he did when he signed on the coalition agreement with Naftali, Bennett, and Lapidi told them the same. He told them, I'm not going to sit out. I'm part of it. Right. And this is what would drive the Likud crazy at the moment because the Likud is saying, Come on, we never wanted him to be part of the coalition. We only wanted him to abstain to let us government be. And Mansour Abbas is telling the back, No, that was never the case. I would not agree to that. So you see a guy who is. Fully engaged, head on. You know what's interesting? What happened with this coalition, the weird change, change coalition, is that we went down um, a generation. Right, Netanyahu, as I said, seventy-two or seventy-three, and then we are down to a prime minister, Naftali Bennett, who is forty-nine, and all of his, his you know, coalition partners are between, you know, fifty, fifty-two, fifty-five, you know, and so on. Mm-hmm and and the mansurabbas is the is the youngest of them he's only 43 i think wow so definitely a generation um, generational change in israel at the moment you have the old the old guard which is netanyahu and is you know the kudnik ministers and then the ultra orthodox gafni and litzman right. and they they all behave you know kind of old guard type and when you look at this coalition uh, except Benigans is only sixty and maybe Lieberman is sixty, but the rest of them are between you know fifty-two and forty-nine and so on. So that's that's a change, a shift. It's
0: imp- and not an not a not important point. Uh really interesting to keep that in mind. You know, a generational change in, in Israel. Uh it remains to be seen how well this new generation can actually govern. Uh mm-hmm. Tal, what's your recommendation for curation corner?
1: Okay, so um I I'm sure. I will go with what I really read and not something that I maybe should have <laughs> read or so because um when I'm reading, I'm actually trying to take my mind off policy, politics, and Middle East issues. And this is just my, um, you know, free time reading. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, in the last couple of years, I've changed my, there is like a behavioral change. Instead of reading, I am... Doing the audiobooks. It's a huge change for me. I've read books my entire life, you know, flipping through the papers and then reading them digitally. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think I haven't opened the book with my, you know, hands and eyes for, you know, for years now. I've only read digital books. But then about two years ago, I moved completely to just listening. Oh. It's easier. Yeah. Yeah listen completely listening to whatever is on those uh audible books or audi books or um on one of those apps, I'm taking it, you know. Unfortunately some of the things are not I mean in Hebrew in Hebrew we don't have much of uh right of an, um uh, how do you say um uh, possibilities to listen. So I'm only listening to English, uh, to books in English. That's unfortunate, but that's what we have. Okay. So I'm, I I would just tell you what I'm listening to at the moment. I'm listening to The Promise by Damon Galbert, which just won the Booker Prize uh, award. It's set in Pretoria, South Africa. It's, you know, not related to Israel, but it it does relate to the Jewish world Mm. because the deceased hero, The uh, wife of one of the heroes is a Jewish woman who, just before her death, has returned to her Jewish roots. And uh, she wants to be buried uh, by a Jewish cemetery and so on. So the books open, uh, the books open in her funeral and the arrangements and the gap, the huge gap between the Christian world, that's her husband, and the Jewish world, that's her and how strange the kids feel. And then, you know, it's all been told from the perspective of the Christian world, not from the perspective of the Jewish. So you get to see the Jewish customs and the Jewish way of life and death from the viewpoint of white people in South Africa. And I love it. I think it's, you know, for me, it's like, you know mind opening and uh lets me think let me allow me to think about other things than the israeli politics
0: <laughs> right uh reminding ourselves that there is a world outside of Israeli politics and outside of the knesset uh
1: and you know also like Jewish diaspora in South Africa, this is something that we don't deal with on a regular basis we when when we think about Jewish diaspora, we think mm-hmm. about you know American Jews or maybe french jews british Jews, Australian Jews. Sure. I never really took the time to think about this, this tiny communities in Pretoria, which was, you know, still Jewish back in the 80s. So very tiny, not, not too many people, one rabbi. It's, it's interesting to hear that.
0: Uh, that's a great recommendation.
1: Unrelated to Israel.
0: No, unrelated, but I like you brought it back to Jewish world and Jewish diaspora, which is also something that we, uh, we obviously all uh, care a lot about and think a lot about. Exactly. Uh, Tal, thank you so much for coming on uh, on this important week, the week after quite a big week in Israeli politics. Uh, Before we end, I'd just like to thank Jacob Gilman, who produces this podcast. And to all of you listening who support Israel Policy Forum's work, uh, including this podcast, you know who you are. And remember just to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Tal, thanks again. Sure.
1: Thank you, Nereen.